things live forever on the internet, but it's important to remember that consumers on the internet and users of, of social media have actually become quite accustomed to the fact that information and opinions are more ephemeral than they've ever been. Welcome to the Rain Insights Podcast. I'm Emily Donahue. As the COVID-19 virus has proliferated across the globe, so too has the spread of conspiracy theories purporting to explain the virus's creation and purpose, ranging from theories about Bill Gates to the virus being a bioweapon. In part two of our podcast, we'll discuss how conspiracy theories can be assuaged by active listening and frequent communication. Our host is RAIN founder and chief collaborative officer, David Lawrence. Our guest panel includes David Bronyatowski, director of the Decision Making and Systems Architecture Laboratory at George Washington University, Robert Ludke, senior consultant with Enodo, Dr. Scott Shumate, founder of Valutare, and Matthew Siegel, CMO and head of global client group Aperture Investors. Let's listen in. It's a very, very important topic, and I feel fortunate, I know the audience will, to have such a great panel to discuss this. So maybe we can go into, I want to encourage a conversation uh, because you've all had such great experience. This is for the audience, for those people who are not familiar with the 5G controversy uh, as it related to COVID-19, a theory went around that the construction of 5G towers was linked to the spread of the virus. It was not dismissed so quickly, Bob. As you know, a, a number, a number, in a number of places, tow- towers were destroyed and fires were set. You know, violence was committed. Uh, there was a viral video called Plandemic, which, you know, finally was taken down, but I think it's still out there. But it was viewed um, at some point, I think, by seven or eight million people. And I had very sophisticated people who were calling me and asking whether it was legitimate. It was a very legitimate looking video interview, almost quasi news coverage uh, about a individual who in her career had been a so-called leader in infectious diseases. And she basically took people through an analysis of the current pandemic, where it started, why misinformation and the advice of CDC and other bodies was promulgated to deceive the public and, you know, what it was that people actually needed to know. And it was very convincing to a lot of people. And there's been some cutting and pasting of guidance that appeared to come from Stanford University Medical Center, from Johns Hopkins, from the Mayo Clinic. And all of it, to your point, had it sort of walked and talked like it was legitimate, that it was plausible. But David, let me let me come back to you and some of the points. Can we talk a little bit about, you know, the actors behind this and their motivations? That's critical to understanding the landscape. Yeah, so I was actually going to mention, uh, mention those, uh, especially in the context of this megaphone analogy that we've been talking about, and also especially in the context of the 5G conspiracy theory, uh, because the 5G one is 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 an especially interesting case. Uh, it fits a pattern. The reason why there were conspiracy theories about 5G is because there is actually a long history 
of certain adversaries of the United States promoting conspiracy theories about technological and public health interventions when those adversaries themselves are behind in the technology. And the reason, uh, the, the, the reason why they may be doing so uh, is because slowing down our adoption of the technology can put uh, them at a relative advantage. And 5G in particular has the uh, possibility of vastly uh, enabling all sorts of uh, of, of of cyber social uh, uh, advances around around the U.S. Everything from self driving cars to uh, much more uh, much more high fidelity communications, uh, real time command and control uh, in a way that. Um, is simply uh, not possible under current protocols. Uh, and so one of the things that we've actually seen is that as 5G was starting to be rolled out, there were actually organized uh, disinformation campaigns going back already a few years uh, around 5G. And those disinformation campaigns actually drew upon existing conspiracy communities essentially as vectors for the spread of this kind of disinformation. And so one of the things we started to see was that 5G conspiracy theories were adopted by some of the sort of more extreme conspiracy theorists, those that claim, for example, that uh, that governments of the world are trying to depopulate certain communities or are trying to, uh, trying to engage in uh, uh, population control through the use of, of 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 widespread chemicals. There are a lot of a lot of these weird ideas out there. Um, but we also see five G conspiracy theories starting to gain purchase uh, over the past few years among several vaccine opponent communities, and from there they go into a lot of the uh, COVID nineteen. Uh, discourse. So a lot of what we're seeing uh, and the, the relationship between 5G and COVID-19 wasn't spontaneous. It was actually a very well-prepared campaign that grew out over a number of years, uh, in part because of uh, Russian disinformation in particular, uh, again, because the Russian, uh, the Russian government is lagging behind uh, other countries in its rollout of 5G, uh, and to some degree around China as well, because there's competition between uh, Chinese and American 5G providers, each one claiming that the other is, uh, is in violation of, uh, of, of various uh, security um, uh, regulations, or is, for example, using 5G to spy on the other. Uh, in fact, I think the Chinese government ran an ad in the New York Times explicitly targeting uh, the Australian rollout of 5G, uh, I want to say about a year ago. Uh, and so th this is, again, th the point here being that this doesn't come out of nowhere. Uh, some of these ha have seeds that are planted, uh, you know, sparks that are fanned into flames by foreign actors. Uh, and those foreign actors use a number of tools that are unique to these social media platforms to amplify and propagate these uh, these disinformation items in a way that make them seem more plausible. So, for example, uh, there was the the analogy used of of the megaphone before that, uh, but I actually like to think about it as individual social media users being one voice in a crowd. Now, when one person in a crowd has a megaphone and nobody else in that crowd has a megaphone, then the person with the megaphone has an unfair advantage. One could even argue that they're actually censoring everybody else uh, through 
uh, flooding the discourse with their own voice. Uh, and in fact, that's one of the things that we've started to see uh, around uh, several of these conspiracy-oriented discourses is the use of automated accounts, people call them bots, uh, to essentially amplify certain voices and make it appear as if opinions that are on the fringe are actually more widespread than they actually are. So one of the things that we see uh, here is that the use of the technology combined with disinformative tactics uh, actually can serve as a form of censorship that not only amplifies those voices, but has the practical effect of making it harder to hear legitimate voices. Well, yeah, yeah. Can I can I jump here? I, I think the I think I think those were all very uh, good comments. I mean, I really uh, you know agree with it. I mean, I <clears throat> I think when we look at conspiracy theories, we we really need to kind of break them down a little bit. I mean, clearly there are those geopolitical, ideological, political, monetary type of uh, motivations for conspiracy theories. But there's also uh, a benign aspect uh, that is there because some of these conspiracy theories really start at the grassroots level and uh, gain momentum, uh, you know, sometimes very rapidly. And the people who join the conspiracy theory may see a political, a monetary, a geopolitical aspect that they can try to uh, uh, fulcrum uh, against. But some of those conspiracy theories are, in fact, oftentimes started because people just do not want to base their opinion on what other people believe that are supposed leaders or supposed experts. And so they want to throw out their own uh, agenda as such. Uh, and again, it doesn't necessarily have to have the malicious aspect to it, but it can take on that form over time. And certainly, if you look at some of the enemies of the United States, some of them are more than willing to try to take advantage of some of these uh, initiatives that are brought forward. Again, some of them for non-malicious, mostly benign reasons. And some of the people who start those mostly benign uh, re, uh, conspiracies are people who want things to stay the same, for there to be no change. And so you see a new technology that comes out, 5G would be one that was brought up. That represents change. That represents something I'm not ready for because I want things to stay the same no matter what. And so if you go back in time, any new technology came with a certain amount of conspiracy or, or fear of, of what it represented. And a lot of that was misinformation, but it, some of it had to do with people just not wanting to experience change because change can be very threatening to people. Now, clearly, the point that was made is that in the 5G situation that Russia wants to try to level the playing field, let there be no doubt that there is that type of initiative, not only with Russia, but other countries as well. And so... What can start off as a fairly innocent 
uh, uh, viewpoint being expressed can get very complicated very rapidly by all sorts of players, some of which who have malicious intent. So that's a great point, Scott. So some of this is organically grown, other it is uh, imported or exported from. So you have your geopolitical actors. There are people who enjoy mischief. There are people who are seeking financial gain. And then, you know, you also have political agendas that are internal in this country. Uh, I'll go back to, you know, Matt's point that there's been a, I'll use the word, Matt, a democratization of not only who gets the microphone, but how loud some things can be heard. And maybe you could share with us some of the insights about how conspiracy theories and disinformation gains traction. And in particular, you know, I'm reminded of the quote that was attributed to Mark Twain and the lies being able to circle the globe before truth has a chance to, I think, get out of bed and tie its shoes. So maybe you can share some insights about what things sort of gain traction and how, how that happens. Yeah, for sure. All the previous points are are excellent points. You know, I couldn't agree more. I guess to add something slightly different, one of the things I find really interesting, if you think about the history of media, one of the things that, you know, always helped stories or theories or ideas spread quickly was, you know, recommendation from a friend. If somebody would actually cut out a newspaper clip and hand it to you, you're probably more likely to read it. If somebody recommended a radio station, you're probably more more likely to listen to it. I think you know that that concept uh, is nothing new at all. Um, but because it it had to take place in the real world, you had centralized actors, be they governments, media moguls, media brands, who were much more able to shape the conversation and shape the idea. These are great insights. I, I there are two categories I want to uh, of questions I want to cover. The first is basically how do people and organizations recognize disinformation? David, let me let me go back to you and we'll go through, you know, to Robert and Scott and Matt. You know, what are the best ways to recognize when information is not does not equal truth? And then how to validate, you know, whatever your conclusion is that you're coming, that it is it is legitimate or it's not legitimate. So, uh, yeah, I think it's a, it's a great question. And I think one of the things, uh, I'm going to say something a little bit controversial here. Um, but I think we have to distinguish between, uh, disinformation, uh, and truth as two related, but not necessarily the same things. Uh, so for example, in the case of something like pandemic, which although, you know, perhaps well put together from a media standpoint is, you know, pretty clearly verifiably false. Uh, in, in a sense, all of the techniques that you mentioned are are um, viable techniques. Uh, and, and I think that for people who are interested in figuring out the truth about things like that movie, uh, they could readily debunk it. And we have excellent fact checkers that do that sort of work. Uh, in a sense, what I'm a lot more concerned about are things that are factually accurate, but decontextualized in order to advance a certain narrative. 
So, for example, uh, we might see uh, in, in, in the vaccine case, for example, somebody pointing at the vaccine adverse event reporting system and saying, see, look, here are some examples of uh, vaccines causing some bad outcomes. And in fact, uh, yeah, there are the very rare uh, bad outcomes. But that doesn't mean that people shouldn't get vaccinated and that vaccines aren't safe and effective for the vast majority of Americans, uh, vast majority of people around the world, in fact. Uh, and so I think one of the things that we have to uh, that we have to really distinguish between are things that are disinformative because they're just not true and are therefore amenable to fact checking. And for again, for the people who want to know the facts, fact checking, uh, media literacy, all of those approaches maybe uh maybe the uh, the right approach they're high in, in need for cognition as we say in psychology um but then there are other things that are just presented in a certain light and people then are sort of allowed to draw their conclusion based on based on the narratives with which they're familiar and for that sort of disinformation we really have to be a lot more proactive in communicating bottom line meanings in making explicit the link between that particular narrative and the values that that narrative might embody because people may not necessarily realize that uh for example not vaccinating means that your neighbor could get sick uh or your neighbor could could die uh and if they don't make that connection figure out the bottom line meaning for them and for the people that they love uh then it may be something that is, seems on the face factually true, but is nevertheless disinformative in a different way. It promotes a false narrative. I think probably the most fundamental way to have a sense of your environment is to always be engaged. And and by that, I mean doing what you did, David, when when someone sent you that pandemic video, you you started talking to people. You had resources you could go to. And in almost operating... Um, in a in a in a mindset of constant awareness, and if you see something that maybe strikes you as a little bit odd, don't hesitate to pick up the phone or, or talk to someone or or do a little bit more research. And I and I think you know in this era of social media and instant communication, people tend to just rely a bit too much on the their their silo and their echo chamber of of their friends and followers in social media, rather than going that extra step and and digging a bit more, maybe talking to someone outside of their usual network to get a more unbiased or a fresh perspective. And and I think in our in our rush to to judge and our rush to communicate, we've too often failed to just take a moment, think about what it is we're doing, and then and then act upon it or make a decision based on that. So Robert, that's an uh, important point. Uh, I'd like to just mention that may be easier said than done. And particularly because political leaders these days are quickly, quickly seizing on, on sort of what they're hearing through social media. And I'll, I'll give Inoto a little bit of a plug. Did some extraordinary work around some of the social media messaging that was coming out of Washington, D.C. and some of the demonstrations and I know Noto documented that, you know, 50% of, I think it was actually more than 50% of the messaging was bot generated. Whatever people thought was being said was not being said at all. And there was, you know, other than the work that you and 
you know, probably other firms were doing. There was sort of no way to know it. And so, Scott, let me, because of your work in the intelligence community in particular, and Matt, you know, because of your roles in the private sector, what we're discussing here is very, very important for the leadership of various enterprises and whether they're dealing with their various stakeholders, everything from customers and clients to their strategic relationships and most importantly to their personnel. Maybe you guys can talk a little bit about, number one, the importance of management leadership, knowing what is being said out there and who's saying it and consequently, you know, what's being heard and the importance of trust in management so that when management speaks on a particular issue, it will resonate and has credibility. And the observation was made that the time to build trust is not during a period of crisis. Either it's there beforehand or it's not. And so maybe you guys, Scott and Matt, you can give us some perspective on those issues. You're absolutely right. I mean, if you're trying to build trust during a time of crisis, it's not that it's impossible, but it's a, a very difficult proposition. Uh, you've got to develop that trust and continue to groom uh, that so that you have uh, trust uh, during a variety of times. And and trust is not one of those things that <clears throat> once you acquire it, you've got it uh, forever. Instead, the trust kind of moves much like uh, the favorability uh, uh, polling that uh, oftentimes takes place uh, on public figures. It kind of goes up and it kind of goes down and kind of moves around a little bit. It's usually, usually within a bracket of movement. And, and that's true for, uh, you know, the C-suite uh, talking to their employees. Uh, that level of trust uh, can get established early on, but if neglected, uh, will dissipate uh, very rapidly. And if when it is finally attended to is during a time of crisis, uh, interestingly enough, most people uh, see it as desperation rather than a legitimate attempt to reach out to the employee. And so you really have to uh, not only get it established, but then work uh, almost on a daily basis. And I know that's a very difficult thing because there's a tendency to find other things or other things find you that require your attention. And uh, so it is one of those things where you have to actually be purposeful at setting aside time during the week to try to find ways to connect with the employees and to, once again, groom that sense of trust. And one of the best ways to try to do that is to talk to people. But frankly, the biggest way to gain trust is to do something else, and that's called listen, to ask questions. It is really the art of listening that gives the basis for trust and the seeking out of uh, other people's opinions and trying to be as tolerant as possible to listen to uh, some of those opinions because undoubtedly some of them are going to be difficult to listen to. 
where most of them won't be, but some will. And when you show an ability to listen and to try to understand why that person has the position that they do, you're inculcating in others in the workforce a sense of trust that you're willing to listen and thus you're, they're more willing to listen to you as well. And so it's not so much what you say, it's what you do that determines if you have trust. The other thing that I think is important about conspiracy theories is oftentimes we think that people fall prey to them because of the lack of IQ. But uh, even people with very high IQ can fall prey to uh, conspiracy theories. There was a study that I read uh, long ago that was talking about what kind of person, uh, you know, believes in conspiracy theories. And I, I found it fascinating because really it's been my experience that all people believe in some form of conspiracy theory. Some believe a lot of them. Uh, some have just a few of them. But almost everybody has um, a belief in conspiracy theories. Now, that doesn't make them bad because, in fact, sometimes conspiracy theories bring in creativity and getting people to look outside the box. But I think the reality is, is that, you know, we're all very prone to listening to things. And then in addition to that, it takes energy to try to critically think through things. And society has gotten very complicated and there's a lot of information, all sorts of information. And so I think what happens is people tend to not want to, to always be critically thinking about uh, the information that's coming their way. And so that kind of puts us in a position where we can be very susceptible to uh, buying in on some of the conspiracy theories that arise in our world. So for the management to recognize that they have to keep their message moving and coming out and being uh, broadcast frequently, and that uh, they want to set up situations where they are taking in information as much, if not more, than what they're uh, broadcasting outward. There's also a fair amount, of, you know, because of your history as a uh, behavioral psychologist, you know, confirmation bias. People come to different situations with pre-held, you know, viewpoints, whether it's part of their value system or political system or religious system. Or, and so sometimes those conspiracy theories help give alternative explanations that actually join with people's prior views. And particularly, you know, as we approach a presidential election, there's no shortage of people with firmly held views, entrenched views. And I forget, you know, somebody used the word tribal. Uh, but when conspiracy theories fit with tribal values, they do adhere a lot more easily. Uh, Matt, you know, because I, again, because of your terrific career, would you just share with us about, you know, how to look out in the landscape and people who are leading enterprises, what should they be doing? How should they be listening? What conclusions should they be drawing about what they're seeing and then about the actions or steps that are needed? The time to engage in the conversation or build trust is not in the middle of an emergency or when there's a sense of urgency. It takes time to build trust. And so enterprises, governments, etc., 
need to think about a very strategic, well-executed social media and digital strategy well before they think they need it. And I, I don't use the word sophisticated lightly because not only is every enterprise different, but every platform is different. What you do on LinkedIn will be different or should be from what you do on Twitter or Instagram. What your CEO does will be different from what your CFO does. There's a lot of work that, that needs to go into shaping the message and figuring out how best to communicate it. But even more important than that is uh, something else that Scott said, actually, which I think translates really well into the digital world, which which is that you know trust is as much or more, I think Scott said, about listening as it is about what you say. And it immediately struck me, well, how does one listen in the digital world? Uh, or at least how does one show that one is listening in the digital world? You know, it's not really enough to have your CEO periodically tweet something pithy or post a photo of an event that the company is having, you know, an attempt to draw people in and, and build trust. That CEO, or in many cases, those who manage that CEO's account, need to figure out ways to authentically engage with, listen to, and speak to other people who are using the same platforms. Um, because if you treat this medium, uh, you know, you'll be met with just abject failure. Um, this is very much a two-way medium. You can speak to lots of people at once. They can speak to you at once. You know, it's not an immaterial amount of work. It takes a lot of reading, thoughtfulness. You have to have thought a lot about what you want your voice to be and what, what you want your brand to represent um, before you even go out and do the work of engaging in that activity. So I think enterprises need to be really thoughtful about how they do that. And there are lots of examples out there today of enterprises that are doing that quite well. You know, what comes to mind, uh, a number of the, the fast food brands have, you know, engaged in so-called Twitter wars with each other in ways that are wholly entertaining, but, but have built loyal audiences in the digital medium in a way that, you know, I, I don't think you can overstate the value if and when any of those companies faces some kind of a crisis of, of trust, uh, they will be able to use followers and those connections in, in ways that are really beneficial. And Matt, implicit in what you're saying is that any enterprise can find themselves the subject of, we'll call it scaled disinformation or even conspiracy theories. So it's highly important to, you know, have that trust already in the bank and be able to understand what, what actually is being said out there. Yeah, absolutely. You know, scaled, scaled trust means as many people as possible who care about you and your brand and what you have to say and the product you create that are following you actively and engage with you on this medium. Because when something bad does happen, and it always will, let's trust you have a bank, use your work. Those are people that you already have connections with whom you can speak to. It doesn't mean that conspiracy theories won't spread. It doesn't mean that your enterprise won't face very real challenges um, that have nothing to do with conspiracies that have to be addressed. But, you know, it does mean that you'll have a receptive ear. Another way to think about this is in the context of, well, not just our president, but, you know, folks in the private sector, someone like Elon Musk, who uh, I think even he would probably agree, you know, is kind of an eccentric personality. And whether you agree with or disagree with the things he says, he has a very intimate and I think that's an important word here, a very intimate relationship with the people who follow him on social media. He can leverage that in a whole host of ways uh, to combat 
as we've seen, <laughs> not just consumers, but regulators and government entities to great effect. This thing could not be beaten back. It went well into the, you know, the, into the 21st century. And so obviously, uh, the other thing that, you know, that people have to note is that, uh, on the internet, these things, they don't die easy. And so your points, the points that everyone has been making about the way information spreads, it scales, the importance of understanding what is out there and the importance of already having we'll call it authentic messengers and people of trust and having built up that trust in advance are critical. Just literally, uh, if I could ask each of you any closing words of wisdom. Yeah, I, I would just say in closing, I think the flip side of all of this is that, yes, things live forever on the internet. They have a way of coming back around. But it's important to remember that consumers on the internet and users of, of social media ha have actually become quite accustomed to the fact that information and opinions are more ephemeral than they've ever been. So I think it's important for enterprises to also not take a lot of these seriously. When I referenced fast food companies, I was actually, I was thinking about Wendy's and they've just done an extraordinary, as you've probably seen, extraordinary job on Twitter. Uh, you know, a famous person tweeting, can you point me the way to the nearest McDonald's? And they just respond with a picture of a garbage can, you know, that kind of thing. Um, because they built that kind of a relationship and that kind of a voice, and they don't have to respond to every little piece of nonsense or criticism that they otherwise would. So I guess in closing, I would just say, I think the flip side of all this is is to remember that not every bad piece of information or what you might consider slander is business ending or earth shattering or election changing and to, to really take things in due course and respond proportionately. I'm not sure I can actually add any more uh, to uh, what Matt said and your summary of it, but um, I, I think taking the long view is usually uh, the best approach. And uh, when uh, you take the long view, you realize that uh, Things happen, and sometimes people uh, say things and do things that uh, are difficult. And uh, if you take the long view, you know sometimes you can kind of see the humor in uh, in the way things have uh, transpired. But uh, it can be very hard, and uh, there can be real consequences. So, I mean, uh, being serious is very important as well. A long view. Yeah, I'd like to go back to the the connection between. Um trust and listening. I, I, because I think in a way we, we might all be a bit complicit in, in allowing these conspiracy theories to, to spread, or at least giving an environment for them to spread. Because it's increasingly clear we're doing a, a really poor job listening to each other. And if you look at, for example, how we analyze the conversations around the protests, we looked at over two and a half million conversations that took place in the two weeks after the murder of George Floyd. And there were two very, very distinct conversations. At one level, you had the news, major news outlets, the socioeconomic elites, a lot of the political leaders talking about racial injustice and the riots at a, at a macro level. If you look at what kind of the, the average everyday person was talking about, they were talking about these riots in the context of uncertainty around COVID, frustrations around lack of socioeconomic opportunity, and concern for their, their fellow citizens when they would see, you know, stores being looted and, and things like that. And so those who are responsible for setting the tone, 
finding solutions and, and creating policies are not looking at these topics the way that a lot of people are. And because of that disconnect, I think increasingly, and frankly, for some good reason, th- those who day in and day out working to, to make ends meet and they're looking to their you know, elected officials for leadership, for good reason, they, they think they're not seeing what I'm seeing. They're not seeing the problems the way I'm seeing them. And, and that just breeds more and more uncertainty. And it's hard to bring closure to these issues when, when there's that belief of disconnect. And it's the same thing happened with Mayor Bowser when she painted Black Lives Matter on the street. She was hailed as this, you know, the person that stood up to the bully. And that's that was great that she did that. But most of the conversations in D.C. when she did that were about the lack of socioeconomic opportunity in the city and that they wish she would have focused on that. We have to start doing a better job of listening to each other and trusting each other. And, and that's really the only way we're going to solve some of these problems that are facing us. I think it's uh, it's going to be hard to follow uh, all of these excellent points. So what I just want to do is essentially um, echo them, and and hopefully in the process, you know, maybe even provide a little bit extra. Um, I think uh, the point about listening is is really right on, and uh, you know we're we're really at a time where, frankly, it's easy to promote discord, uh, and not only is it easy to promote discord, uh, we see. Everybody, including prominent names in the scientific community, uh, unfortunately, framing people with whom they disagree using military terms, for example, the war on science, things like that. Um, and, and we're at a time uh, where that kind of discord is not only interpreted as harmful, but you know, some of our adversaries are actually trying to weaponize that against us. So we see that in the vaccine discourse as well, where you have these anti-anti-vaxxers, these people who basically troll the anti-vaxxers, but that doesn't convince anyone. Um, and so the question then becomes, you know, how do we in practice go about listening and, and, and how do we do this in a way that helps people to feel connected to each other rather than breaking down into our tribes, which is fundamentally something that is destructive for our society? You know, I, I think Bob's point is, is spot on. Uh, you know, we have to emphasize values. We have to emphasize how our communications, you know, get to the bottom line meaning of what does this mean for the person who's listening? Uh, And so that means you don't just have to address the facts. Obviously, the facts are important. But if you just try to go out there and correct everybody who's wrong on the internet, not only are are you going to spend a lot of time, but you're going to end up creating an environment in which you're always contrarian, you're always coming across as, as chasing someone, as, as, as the negative Nancy, as it were. And so I really think this point of emphasizing the values and first understanding before responding is really important. It, it's key to understand the values that are being expressed by various conspiracy theories, by various items of disinformation, by various items of simply falsity, misinformation, and then to respond in a way that expresses those values and understanding of those values. Yes, perhaps while correcting the facts, but making it about, well, you're wrong and I'm right, can have that effect of promoting discord uh, and and may end up being ultimately controversial. So I, I really I really want to thank the other panelists for for outlining those points because I think it's absolutely crucial. 
So I want to thank everyone for a terrific and very, very insightful and meaningful conversation. And by virtue of the perspectives and comments provided, let's retitle this podcast, Why Conspiracy Theories and Conflict Go Viral in the Age of COVID-19 and Beyond. So I want to thank all of you, David, Robert, Scott, and Matt. Terrific insights. Your time is very valuable, and we really appreciate uh, you having shared this with our audience today. Individuals and organizations turn to RAIN for risk intelligence that cuts through the hype to focus on what they need to know, what to expect, and what to do. If you like what you heard today and would like to learn more about RAIN, go to www.rainnetwork.com backslash join to become a member today. RAIN members get exclusive access to webinars, podcasts, the Daily Risk Book email digest, expert content, and more. So go to www.rainnetwork.com backslash join to become a member today. I'm Emily Donahue. Thank you for listening.